0: Uh, they can do children 's church through these doors if if they 'd like I want to ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We are beginning in this new uh, series in the Gospel of mark it 's going to um, take us consistently uh, in in touch with these people who keep encountering jesus and as Joel was praying we we just we want to have their Sense of astonishment, sort of anew. Uh, we'd like to see Jesus uh, fresh and, uh, and be reminded uh, that he, in fact, does do all things well. Uh, we want to agree not just theologically with that, but experientially with that. Um, so uh, that's tough to hold on to sometimes. And, and that's why we need to stay in Scripture. That's why we need to stay together. Uh, there are definitely moments where that's easy to say that Jesus does all things well. And there are times when it's hard to say that. Uh, So hopefully we're going to be able to say amen, regardless of our circumstances, as we become more and more convinced uh, through the gospel that Jesus does all things well. Uh, If you found your place in uh, in Mark chapter 1, go ahead and let's stand in honor of God's Word. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Uh, In particular, this morning we're going to see... Jesus, through the eyes of John the Baptist, uh, who, who, you know, putting words in his mouth, would agree that, in fact, Jesus does do all things well. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to us this morning, Um, give us receptive hearts, give us eyes to see and hearts to agree in fact that Jesus has done all things well. We pray in his name, amen. Please be seated. Um, What we have in front of us is uh, the opening verses to the Gospel of Mark, obviously, but uh, uh, but, but verse 1 tells us that this is the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and so in at least those two senses, the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to sort of unpack what exactly is the nature of this gospel. But there's a third sense too uh, that we're going to conclude with, which is the preaching of John the Baptist. Um, you know, when a preacher gets up uh, to preach. A lot of times they'll, they'll maybe say that I'm going to preach this text or that text, but, but all evangelical preachers, preachers who are worth their salt, who are glorifying God, uh, seek to preach the gospel. Um, and so John the Baptist is the last of the prophets in, in the line, long line of the Old Testament prophets. He's bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he is, he is preaching the gospel. Uh, he's preaching good news. And so what's the nature of the gospel of John the Baptist? What's the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's Mark's gospel? Let's, let's begin there with Mark's gospel. What's the gospel according to Mark? And uh, we could have chosen Matthew or Luke or John, but instead we've landed on Mark, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. It is, it is the shortest of the four gospels, which is good news because guess what? This is only going to take us two years to get through instead of like longer. Uh, Mark divides chapters 1 through 8 are really about uh, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, or you can also say it's just a, a prolonged prologue <laughs> to chapters 9 through 16, which is the passion, the suffering, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to spend this year in chapters 1 through 8, next year in chapters 9 through 16. Uh, that said, it is nonetheless the shortest of the four Gospels. It's the earliest Of the four Gospels, Uh, written most most scholars, most conservative scholars are in agreement, um, and there's not unanimity, but um, general agreement that Mark was written somewhere around 55 A.D., um, maybe just one or two years after that, possibly. But Mark was writing from Rome, and um, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But Mark became the the, uh, source material, it would seem, uh, and again, there's a lot of agreement on this, but not not unanimity, but it looks like and appears like um, Matthew, when he was writing his gospel, and Luke, when he was writing his gospel, had Mark um, available to them. Because you'll find 90 to 93% of the gospel of Mark is somewhere to be found in the pages of Matthew and Luke combined, all right? So there's, there's some overlap going on there. Um, John's Gospel, just as an aside, is, is different from the three, quote, synoptic Gospels, the Gospels that are looking together, seeing, seeing together. Uh, John's Gospel, 90% of John's Gospel is unique to John. Like, you're not going to see overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and uh, John's Gospel is written later. It's a little bit more of a different whole perspective, like more philosophical, more uh, intellectual and um, a lot more discourses of Jesus. So, so what about Mark? Um, there's there's more to Mark that I want to highlight for you. Mark is really really clever in the way that he just moves so quickly from scene to scene. Um, he he's like those Gonzo journalists uh, who would go in with a microphone and maybe a handheld, you know, camera. The the image is shaky but it's right there firsthand, right on the field, you know, eye to eye witness. And, uh, and, and that's sort of the nature of Mark. You keep coming across this word immediately. Like there's just this urgency uh, all, all throughout Mark. Mark is not uh, a big budget production, you know, this epic um, documentary biography of Jesus. It's it's, it's too fast-paced. Um, in fact, um, Mark is, well, um, some have been critical of, of Mark. Mark is not a paragon of literary virtue. Mark's Greek is a little bit rough around the edges. His stories almost sometimes feel a little bit patched together. They're not always chronological. Um, there's sort of, there's seems to be some gaps, right? Did you happen to notice that we read verses 1 through 7 in chapter 1 and there's, there's no nativity? Where's baby Jesus? Um, and, and the ending is a little bit, uh, well, you'll have to wait two years to know, you know, how, how chapter 16 resolves. But there's some sort of questions about uh, the sources and, and, um, and some scribal stuff going on in chapter 16. So, anyway, so Mark's unique, but I know that this is actually good news. This, this, this should um, affirm your trust in Mark's gospel, because Mark was never written as a, uh, just a really good fable. It was, it's never you know, never been under uh, eligible, eligibility for some kind of criticism that it's just propaganda. It doesn't have enough polish. Mark is good news not good legend, right? Legends are different. Uh, Legends tend to exaggerate all the good qualities of their protagonists and characters and and exaggerate the bad qualities of the antagonists, and it's just all very flowery fable kind of feel to it. Mark is not that. Mark is genuine. It's the real thing, and in fact, um, some of you are familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, who's was an author and a Christian apologist, Wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and we're, gonna, we're looking forward to Prince Caspian this summer for VBS. Um, so C.S. Lewis, more than an author, though, his primary job, you know that he was a lit- literature professor uh, at Cambridge University and at Oxford? And he taught um, medieval old English literature, like Beowulf and stuff. He knew ancient literature. And he said this uh, in an article uh, that's titled, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? And he says, now as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. And that's good. We don't need lots of artistry. We need news. We need objectivity. We need honesty. We need integrity. And so um, if you've been in the church for a while, hopefully this, you, you're, you're feeling that sort of, you know, yeah, amen, you're nodding your head. And you're that. But listen, if you're new to the church, you know, pay attention here. This is not what you think it is. The, you've been told all your life that you can't trust the Bible, that it's just this piled on you know, oral history and everything's been corrupted and so on and so on. That's not the case at all, all right? Uh, and we can talk more about that later if you've got follow-up questions. But, uh, this is not a fable and it's not a legend. Uh, it's good news. So a gospel, um, by the way, is, is sort of an interesting genre all to itself. Uh, in the New Testament, you come across letters. You even get to the end of the New Testament. You get to Revelation. It's sort of this apocryphal, apocalyptic stuff. Um, but the, the gospels are an almost unique genre that was borrowed. They're not in a, a, a new invention so much as they were borrowed from their context. Because in the Roman Empire... There were gospels. A gospel was a, a bit of news that would come from generally a battlefield where Rome's army was victorious. And the good news would come back. The UN would return to Rome. Hey, we routed another enemy, you know, hail Caesar, good job, everybody. Let's have a feast. Um, that was sort of the good news back then. Or another way that Good news was used as a genre, a literary type, a variety of writing was when an emperor would be born, right? And, it, and you, can, you see the word in Latin. You can see it, and it's not in the Bible. It's in other Roman documents talking about the good news that this new king uh, was born or that this battle was won. So really, I want you to see that the gospel is news, it's not legend, it's about, it's about a dramatic inrush of a victory or a person. And what the gospel authors in our Bible are saying is, yes, that all came true in Jesus Christ. So Mark was not an apostle, though. Um, let's, let's shift gears here to, if you're following your outline the gospel according to Peter, recorded uh, by Mark. Uh, Mark's uh, gospel is written by, uh, his longer name is John Mark, and you do run into him in other parts of the Bible, especially in Acts. Uh, This is the guy uh, who was a cousin to Barnabas and was with Barnabas and with Paul in Acts 15. And Barnabas says, hey, let's take my cousin Mark along. And Paul says, "Nope, not going to do it. Uh, I don't trust Mark. And Paul didn't trust Mark because earlier uh, on Paul's first initial missionary journey, uh, Mark, for some reason that we don't have actual you know, concrete details about, Mark abandoned the mission and went back to Jerusalem, and that did not sit well with Paul at all. So much so that there was this division between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. Barnabas is saying, we're taking Mark. And Paul is saying, no, we're not. And these two heroes of the mission field split. There was a division over Mark. But when you kind of keep reading the Bible, keep reading the rest of the New Testament, you get to the end of Paul's life, And the very last letter that we have from Paul is 2 Timothy. And you get to the end of 2 Timothy, to chapter 4, and you read this. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he's very useful to me for ministry. So this one who had sort of failed in Paul's eyes and had become unreliable and Paul just wanted nothing to do with him, the gospel had been at work in Mark's life. And he proved his repentance, and he was restored in some way. We don't know the details, as I said, but so much so that now Paul, at the end of his life, is saying, "Mark is valuable to me. He's very useful to me uh, for ministry." And furthermore, Paul—I'm uh, sorry—Mark ended up at some point in Rome, and now he's with Peter. He, you know, was useful to Paul, and now he's with Peter in Rome. And Peter says this about Mark: "She who, meaning the church uh, in Rome, she who is in Babylon," Paul's, uh, Peter's referring to Rome, "chosen together with you sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark." Peter is referring to Mark as his son. Similar language to how Paul referred to Timothy, and 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 so Peter and Mark are in. Rome, and they're writing together, and Mark is recording Peter's reflections and his memories of ministry with Jesus. And so really what you have in the gospel of Mark is the gospel according to Peter recorded by Mark. Mark was not an apostle, neither was Luke. Both of them are relying on eyewitness testimony, in, in Mark's case, relying on Peter's testimony. And you can go back to like 120, 130 AD, like early second century for the, the bishop of Hierapolis, one of these you know, um, towns that had a church planted in it, saying that, yes, in fact, Mark's gospel is the accounts of Peter reflecting on Jesus' life. And all throughout Mark, you see Peter, 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 Peter. So it's, it's the gospel according to Peter recorded by Mark. Now, let me just, all right, this is all kind of interesting, right? It's maybe, you know, I don't know, um, trivia that you can hold on to, but I think there's something deeper here. Peter and Mark's relationship sounds like Paul and Timothy's, as I said. And I think it's a pretty cool demonstration of how the gospel works. So the world works this way. If you're successful and if you're powerful and if you win, then you get rewarded. But if you fail, you get kicked to the curb and you're no use to us anymore. But in the gospel of Mark, you have a case study for how the gospel works, which is simply this. Mark had failed in in Paul's eyes, at least, miserably. Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance. But he had failed in Paul's eyes and somehow had been restored, right? So that by the end of Paul's life, he's saying, hey, Mark, is, he's, he's the guy. He's the man. What about Peter? Peter had failed miserably in Jesus' eyes, right? And Jesus restores Peter. And now you've got this gospel that is sort of the, uh, the epitome of, of two failures who have been restored by this gospel of grace through Jesus And now through their combined ministry, we have the second gospel in in your New Testament. Isn't that a lesson to us, to all of us, who from time to time feel like failures? God can use you. God will use you. And to some of you who feel like a failure all the time, God can use you. God restores us. His gospel's at work in us. And my goodness, you know, the second book of the New Testament is a compilation of two people that in the world's eyes are failures, but in the gospel's eyes are restored and are useful for ministry. You and I are too. Uh, So that's a little bit of background. Let me move on to to verse one where, where Mark is introducing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, right? You see, there's some language in there that I think would be helpful for us to unpack. And let me just ask you by starting off, uh, and some of you have heard this question before, so you may know where I'm going, that's okay. But if, you, if I were to ask you to summarize, um, to take out maybe the back of your outline or something and take a pen, and just in 50 words or less, just summarize the gospel, what would it be? Could you do it? Could you do it in 50 words or less? What about 25 words or less? Just a quick summary, here's the gospel, 25 words or less. How about about 10 words or less? How about summarizing the gospel in just two words? If this is review for you, good, because I wanna drill this into your head. This is your gospel outline, Jesus Christ, right? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So when Mark uses the word Jesus, we have to remember that Jesus' name isn't just something picked out of a hat. You know, hey, maybe we'll name him David. Maybe we'll name him Moses. No, I like Jesus. Jesus sounds nice. And name him Jesus because the angel Gabriel told Mary and Joseph, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And as I said, that the last half of Mark's gospel is an entire record of the atoning work of Jesus for our sins, where he would step into our place as our substitute sin bearer, that he who had no sin became sin. And just as all those Old Testament sacrifices were foreshadowing, they were showing us a type of the one who was going to come and who would lay down his life, his blood would be shed a life for a life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So Jesus takes our place, lays down his life for us so that all who trust in him might have their sins forgiven, wiped clean, the record, you know, any, any, any record of wrongdoing removed. And that we would be looked at and viewed as righteous in God's sight through faith in, the, in another who stands in our place. So Jesus is the one who removes our sins from us um, and you see that he's the one who's gonna stand in that gap between uh, a holy God and a sinful human race and all who call on Jesus are gonna be forgiven. And that's the whole record of the, the second half of John's gospel. What about the Christ? Um, if you were to jump uh, to the end of Mark in chapter 14, the high priest asked Jesus when he's on trial, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed?" And Jesus said, "I am." Right. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of Power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Another chapter later, the centurion who stood facing the crucified Jesus saw that this uh, saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, and he said, "Truly, this man." was the Son of God. Do you remember where Mark and Peter are when they're writing this gospel? They're in Rome. And in Rome, you've got a lot of people who aren't familiar with a Messiah, who's the anointed. That's a Jewish concept, but they know very well who the Son of God is. So there's overlap between that title Christ or Messiah, Jewish concept, Jewish audience is going to go, yeah, I know what that means, the anointed king who's coming to set the world straight, but the Son of God is a concept that Roman audiences, non-Jewish audiences, would be completely conversant with. Do you know why? Because on their coins, on their currency, the money that they're using, is a picture of the emperor, a picture of Caesar, with two initials on it, D. F, Latin for son of God. Oh, yeah, we know what son of God is. That's the king. That's the emperor. That's the one with all the power. And so to their Roman audience, the non-Jewish audience, this is Mark's way of saying, this is the Christ. He's Jesus who's going to save us from our sins, but he's the true king, the real emperor. This is an important affirmation. Um, It's more than that. It's a pledge of allegiance to a new king, to a new order, to something that would actually be very dangerous to affirm in the Roman Empire because the Roman emperor claimed to be the son of God. Now you have a rival, but not just any rival. You have, you know, as Paul in his epistle to the church in Rome, right, Romans 1.1, That Paul says he's the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, the true emperor. So in the simplest sense, Mark's dividing his gospel into that that gospel summary. Jesus the Christ. He's going to first focus on Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who's, who rules everything well. He does everything well. I mean, everything, right? Like, the demons obey him. The storms submit to him. Creation flourishes underneath him. His enemies retreat from him, the, the sick are made whole by him, the crowds are endeared to him. He's everything everybody wants in an emperor. He's the true king, and he's coming to make all things new and to repair all things that are broken. And that's what Mark wants us to see, that he does everything Only Christ can do this. Only the real true emperor can do this. How do you respond to such a person, to such a king? Can you remain neutral in his presence? Can you just sort of be like I'm Switzerland? Could anybody in Rome say, I'm Switzerland? I'm just sort of ambivalent toward the Emperor. I don't really, yeah, either way, I'm not sure. No. You were either for him or you were against him. And times have not changed when it comes to the true king. You have to decide. Are you for him or are you for something or somebody else? Because there is no neutrality. And this is what Mark wants us to see. So let me wrap up with the Gospel of John the Baptist. um, Some thoughts on his message, his gospel. In verse 4 and 5, we hear about how John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See that? And then all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You see the role of like forgiveness of sins, confessing their sins, the role of repentance. This is integral to, to John the Baptist's gospel. And that hasn't changed. Like you can't have a gospel without a message of repentance because the gospel is the good news of our sins being forgiven. Do you ever have this discussion around your table, your dinner table? Is it okay to burp or not? We have that discussion on our table. And, and mom and dad have, have, have laid down the law. It's official. Burping is not okay at this table. If you're in that, burp all you want. It's culturally appropriate there. It's how you say, I enjoyed that meal. You just just let the gastric gases rip. Anybody want to demonstrate? Can you you do this, Jack? No, 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 we're just not going to go there. Um, So we have this sort of debate, and every now and then one of our kids, sometimes multiple kids, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. You just get to, to guess. Uh, every now and then, somebody lets it rip, and they're like, oop, <laughs> sorry. And we're like, sorry, not sorry, right? Um, and, and, and so our culture understands the language of sorry, but not sorry. Not, not real repentance. Real repentance says, you know what, I sinned. And sin isn't just something that you you smile about and wink about. You realize, no, I've done something willfully against a holy God who will hold me accountable for that. I've defied the emperor. And there's going to be a reaction. So when you think about repentance, repentance is not just simply saying, I'm sorry but it's actually actually having real sorrow for what we understand to be sinful and then and then changing right so back to the burping conversation yeah sorry well okay next time don't open your mouth when i so there's grace for the gastric gasses sometimes they just you can't keep them where they're where you want to keep them but you don't have to open your mouth and just let it rip either and every time you do You're sort of demonstrating that you really weren't sorry before. Repentance is not saying you're sorry and then just kind of going. "Hmm." Repentance means saying I'm sorry and then I don't ever want to do that again. I I want to turn from what I know is defying the true king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and then I want to become more like him. I want to be changed. Repentance is a commitment to change all of us. True repentance has that heart behind it. It doesn't mean you're going to walk on water south of heaven It doesn't mean that you will ever attain sinlessness in this life, but it does mean that you and I can sin less often. We can grow in sanctification. We can become more and more like Jesus. We can become more and more loving, more and more desiring to serve our neighbors. And that is a big picture of what John was preaching. Look, turn from the world, the way it's working, and turn back to God. Back to God. And then in verse 6, you hear about John's got this camel hair clothing and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and to untie. Right? So John the Baptist is sort of this wild man. He's out in the wilderness where the wild things are, right? And he's wearing this camel clothing and um, leather belt. And he's got this beard with sticky bits of honey in it. And maybe some little grasshopper leg pieces and stuff. Like, he's got the apocalypse in his eyes. Do not tame this man. Don't do that. Let me show you this um, artwork from the 16th century, like, Two years before Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses uh, to the door, uh, this, this painting was, was uh, depicted in a church right in between Germany and France. Um, Matthias Grinwald uh, painted the Eisenhelm Triptych, right? It's an altarpiece. And I want to give you this, this close up of John the Baptist. And so he's got the Pro- book of the prophets, he's the last of the prophets. He's got the camel hair suit going, um, right, Uh, with the shoulder pads. Uh, And the Lamb of God at the bottom pointing to, uh, depicting Jesus and how John would point to the one who would take the sins of the world away. But he's pointing. And now let me show you what he's pointing at, the bigger picture of the altarpiece. He's pointing at Jesus. He's pointing at the one who is our hope, who is our salvation who's going to take our sins away and who's going to give us who's going to do all things well he will rule all things well right and and John is is pointing to him and he's and there's this other close up there that I want you to see where in latin the artist has depicted john 330 he must increase but i must decrease he's pointing to jesus Again, the tradition of all the prophets that were a little wild-eyed, he's pointing to the one who would come and save the world, who would save God's people. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, that's a significant phrase because in Jewish uh, communities, if you were a Jewish servant, if you were the household servant in a Jewish household, It was beneath you. Nobody expected you to untie the straps of your master or mistress's sandals. That was not your job as a Jewish servant because that was beneath your dignity. And John is saying, I'm I'm not even worthy to do that which is beneath the common understanding of human dignity when it comes to this, this king who's coming. When it comes to this Savior, He's that great, He's that important. He's the one we need. He's the one we need to point to. He's the one who's going to give true uh, salvation and true help, true solutions, true satisfaction to God's people. Where are you and I pointing? And a lot of times we, we we're not even conscious of it, but we end up pointing at ourselves. And we sort of have this thinking that, well, if everybody just sort of had the same values and priorities and principles and preferences that I do, then the world would operate really, really well. And so just here's my advice, take my advice, and you're going to be fine. And, and that's sort of this, the presupposition is I've got it all figured out. You're maybe not consciously thinking that, but unless we're actively pointing to Jesus, that is inevitably what you're going to communicate. Just get your life together like my life, and all will be well with you. That's why we have to point to Jesus, which will offer a corrective to our misguided advice sometimes. But even when your advice is good, like don't, let, don't give people the impression that you are the end all. He is. The second and final thing we point to, not only just ourselves, but we point to our leaders. We point to our political leaders, we say they're the ones that are going to make things right. And if we just get these people in office and get these people out of office or vice versa or whoever, whatever party or whoever your, your candidate is, just thinking that if we point to them, that's what's going to make you know, everything right and that's what's going to heal and that's what's going to solve and that's what's going to save. And they won't. The church cannot be identified with a political party. We are the kingdom of God and we have to be identified with him first and foremost. And so whether we're pointing at ourselves or whether we're pointing at our leaders, Jesus is the solution. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. And there's a place, I know, for good advice, and there's a place, I know, for good politics. But what we really, really need is good news, the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you please bless your people as we seek to see more of Jesus and agree more and more in our hearts and in our minds that, that he does all things well, that he is the only one who can save us from our sins. He's the only one who can truly repair this broken world. And Lord, would you find us as individuals, as households, as a congregation, would you find us faithful to point to Jesus and to help our neighbors and to help our nation, to help our world see and agree that, yes, he does all things well. Lord, would you bless those who are struggling this morning, who are doubting this morning, who are just um, on, on the fence about Jesus, about the, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Give them faith. Give them salvation. Give all of us greater faith. Give all of us greater humility to point to to him. In his name we pray, amen.